0: I think I told you last time, there are three groups of people in this room. Do you remember this? There's three groups of people. One group of people have heard all this already. And to that group of people, I quoted two texts of Scripture. Do you remember what they were? Matthew 24, verse 4 and 24. This presentation, believe it or not, is for you. You might be deceived. Keep that in mind. I might be deceived. We all must study God's word more and more each day. And then there's a second group of people. There's a group that have never heard it before. They're going to be shocked. They're possibly going to be angry. They're like, there's no way the Bible says that. Um, And I have no idea who's in group one, group two, or group three. That's the group that doesn't really care. I think by the end of our presentation tonight, there won't be anybody in group three. Everybody's going to understand that you know this matters, but I don't know who's going to be in group one and group two. Um, but I talked with Paul after my last presentation, and he and I shared one text of scripture. I'd invite you to turn there. This is Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians. This is we looked at two big passages about the Antichrist. We'll review them briefly tonight. For those of you who missed, I'm very sorry. Ask me questions afterwards if you need to because you missed a lot if you missed Tuesday evening's presentation. We talked about Daniel chapter 7 in detail. We talked about Revelation 13 in detail, and we identified the Antichrist. We're building on that tonight. We didn't look as much at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I want you to look at verse 10, because at the end of time, we all understand there's two groups of people, right? There's sheep and goats and the saved and lost. I mean, Jesus tells all sorts of parables about this. Based on 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 10, What separates the saved from the lost? Is it understanding the mark of the beast? No. Is it knowing the Ten Commandments from memory? No. What is it? It's the love of the truth. And this applies with equal force to group one and group two even if you think you've heard all of this before, if you do not love the truth, you will be lost. You will be lost. And if you're in group two and all this information that we share is completely new to you and you're you know, upset about it, the same thing applies to you. Do you love the truth? With that introduction, I'd like to pray once more and we'll get into our presentation. Dear God, I ask that I will love the truth tonight, and that each one of us, as we see the Bible come alive, will understand it more. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the year 2010, they first started to show up in the state of Michigan. $20 bills, and lots of them. They were counterfeit $20 bills produced by the man who's been called the greatest counterfeiter of all time. His name was Frank Barassa. He was actually in Canada, but he got his paper from Switzerland and France. He got his ink from some other country, and he quite literally set up to make his fortune. He got some printing equipment from China, and on the special paper, special ink, he started making $20 bills, about $150 million of them. That's a lot of money. And he eventually was caught, of course... But when all was said and done, the most amazing thing is he only spent six weeks in a Canadian jail and was fined $1,500. Not recommending counterfeiting, but it seemed to work out for him. Why did it work out for him? Why did he make, quite literally, a fortune printing money? It's because his counterfeit looked almost exactly like the real thing, isn't it? That's kind of the key to a counterfeit is making sure it looks very close to the real thing. That's kind of the key to a good counterfeit. Now, the only foolproof way at the end of time to tell the difference between the counterfeit and the true is by understanding God's word and making the Bible your standard. I'm going to take a side trip here. This is a very quick way to avoid the mark of the beast. You want to avoid the mark of the beast? Everybody who wants to avoid the mark of the beast, raise your hand. Okay, good. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is along the lines of saying we need to understand the Bible more. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5 is a famous passage that I think Chris already mentioned um, during a presentation. This is Deuteronomy chapter 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your might. Look at verse 6. These words which I command you this day shall be in your what? Heart. Be in your heart. The words that he's referring to are actually the Ten Commandments that he just reviewed with them in Deuteronomy chapter 5. You can go back and con, uh, confirm that for yourself. Um, These words which I command you this day shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them pretty much all the time. Do you see that in that verse? You're walking, sitting, lying down, talk about them all the time. Notice verse 8. And you shall bind them for a sign. We'll come back to that word up in two places. Where? Okay. In your hand in your eyes. and in between your eyes right here. God's word, especially the Ten Commandments in this context, are to be in your hand, guiding every single thing that you do. And they're to be in your forehead, guiding every thought that you think. The Pharisees made this into some literal thing. They actually, I had to ask my mother-in-law the name of this. They were phylacteries. You remember those pictures of Pharisees that have this little box on their forehead? They put a little tiny piece of the word of God in there. That's not what it's talking about. These words are to be in our heart. They are to guide our actions and our thoughts. And if you put God's law into your mind and have it control everything you do, well, we'll we'll see. That's kind of where the mark of the beast goes too. isn't it right in the hand and the forehead? You want God's word there instead. Anyhow, side note about the word of God. There's a lot of weird ideas about the mark of the beast. I will say it is the culmination of a great battle between good and evil that we've talked about. Remember the very beginning that Chris talked about Lucifer in heaven wanted authority, he wanted power, he wanted control over others, he wanted worship, and that was the main issue that kind of started this entire battle between good and evil. He coveted the place of God. Now his quest for worship is really eventually going to be brought to a head over one issue, and that one issue that we'll talk about tonight will demonstrate whether you've chosen Christ as your Lord and Savior. We've already said when Jesus comes back, there's only these two groups of people on, the, and on planet Earth. So this subject tonight is a solemn subject. And again, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 10. Do you love the truth? I pray that each one of us love the truth. We looked at this already. This is our Revelation chapter 14. This is the third angel that comes and shares a message. And this is an extremely solemn subject. Read this message with me because it's probably the greatest warning in all of scripture. Ready? Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, "'If anyone worships the beast and his image "'and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand,' He himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. There isn't another warning message in all the Bible as serious as this one. Now, I think if God is sending this serious warning message, he will help us to understand the mark of the beast as well. Don't you agree? There's all these weird ideas. Some people think it's a tattoo. I've heard people say it's like a chip underneath the skin or a barcode, like on people's foreheads. You've probably seen cartoons of those sort of ideas. Um, And I forget which one of our presenters made this point. I think it was Keith. There's a big difference between the mark of the beast and the mechanism that enforces the mark of the beast. I have no idea exactly how the mark of the beast will be enforced. You remember that we saw those who don't accept the mark of the beast can't buy and sell, Right We saw that in Scripture already. I don't know how that will be enforced. some barcode, credit card, debit cards. Who knows, But that in itself is not the mark of the beast. That's just the mechanism of enforcement. So that's not what we're looking at tonight. Now, some people are also confused because they don't know what a beast is. Now, what's a beast represented in Bible prophecy? Kingdom. A kingdom. And we've gone through that as well. We understood, again, there's a previous presentation from Tuesday, this is all review. If you have questions about this, come talk with me afterwards. Based on Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation 13, we understood the identity of the beast. These are the identifying marks that we went through, and we'll look at at least one more tonight. First off, this little horn power in Daniel 7, as well as the beast in uh, Revelation 13, same power. The little horn was, first of all, little, right? Second of all, it came up among the other horns. Now, these 10 horns on the top of the beast, I'm sorry, we don't have a picture up here, were the nations of Western Europe. So somewhere in the area of Western Europe, that nation will arise. This power will arise. It came up after the horns. This is after 476 AD. That's when the other horns were in power. It plucks up three of them. And we saw that three of those 10 horns no longer exist. If you want to know exactly where this power is, knowing where the horns were that it plucked up might help you. One was in kind of northern Italy, one was in southern Italy, and one was in North Africa right across the Mediterranean from Italy that might give you a clue. We saw that this little horn power has a man at its head that speaks and sees for it. Speaking of speaking, this little horn power speaks great words and blasphemies. We looked at what the definition of blasphemy was, claiming to forgive sins, claiming to be in the place of God. We also saw this little horn power persecutes God's people. This little horn power thinks to change times and laws. And finally, this power reigned for 1,260 years, and we saw that was 538 A.D. to 1798. We went over all of that in our previous uh, lecture. There's only one power in this entire world that fits, and we saw that that's Vatican City. Now, some people are surprised to hear this today, but we also looked that if you went back about 150 years ago, nobody would be surprised. All Christians pretty much understood that that's what the Bible was teaching. John Knox, John Huss, John Calvin, John Wesley, a lot of people who weren't named John. um, Pretty much all Christians understood that that was the identity of the little horn power and the beast in Revelation 13. Somehow we've managed to forget our religious history, and there's a variety of reasons for that. Now, we're going to take another sidetrack because everybody's interested in the number of the beast, you know, 666, right? So 666 is not the mark of the beast. 666 is the number of the beast. We see that in Revelation 13, verse 18. Here's wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. It's the number of a man. Then the number is 666. So it's a number and not the mark of the beast. Now, down through time, the pope had a variety of authoritative titles. And I told you this is why you're not completely wrong, Paul, when we and I talked about it before um, one of them is vicarius fili Dei. All the other titles don't really have anything wrong with them, but that particular title means Vicar of the Son of God or the one who stands in the place of the Son of God. Now, I don't want to put too much weight on this because this is only one out of probably scores of identifying marks. This is not a big deal, but people are interested, so here it is. You probably know that uh, Latin um, letters have numeric uh, equivalents, and here they are. Vicarious, Filii, Dei, or Vicar of the Son of God, 666. Now, you might say, Eric, maybe your name adds up to 666. You know, whether your name or my name or anybody's name adds up, it doesn't really matter. This is, again, small side point. This is only one of a number of identifying marks that we've been through to identify this beast power, and this is not the mark of the beast, okay? Just so we understand it's the number of the beast. Okay, so let's get to the mark of the beast. Now, if a nation is a religious institution, you might reasonably anticipate that the mark of its authority might also be of a religious nature. Let's go to Revelation chapter 13. Now take your Bibles because I have not put all of these on the screen. I want you to see it in your own Bible. Go to Revelation chapter 13. I need to turn there myself. We'll look at a few key verses to see kind of what the issue is here. Look down at verse 3. All the world... This is the end of verse 3. All the world wandered after the beast, or all the world followed the beast, depending on your translation. So, how did they follow the beast? Look at verse 4. So, they worshipped the dragon, which gave power to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who's like unto the beast, and who is able to make war with him? Look down at verse 8 and see something similar. All those who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now this is something that God wants to understand. This kind of reiterates the idea that the big question down at the end of time is one of worship. That's what Satan wanted in heaven and that's where this entire battle between good and evil kind of ends. To whom will you give your allegiance? Who will you serve? Who will you really whose approbation will you value? Who has your heart? Now we've seen the beast wants to mark its followers, right? We've seen that already. The beast wants to put its mark. I want you to know that God wants to do exactly the same thing. Turn back to Revelation chapter 7. I did put this one on the screen. It's Revelation chapter 7 and verse 3, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have done what? Sealed Sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Now, your forehead represents your mind. When God wants to seal his servants in their forehead, he wants his people to to be people who have made decisions for him. In their minds, they have settled into the truth. They have decided to follow him. They desire to follow truth. Those who have done that have given their mind to Christ Jesus. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So what is a seal? Now, in Bible times, we're not quite as familiar with it now, a seal was something that you would affix to a document to give it authority. You probably are somewhat familiar with. How many of you have ever gotten something notarized? Right, Lots of you have gotten something notarized. Now, if you look at that notary public um, and you look at their seal, it contains three things. Any seal has has these three things. It has the name of the person, obviously. It has their title. And it has their dominion, if you will, or where they actually have authority. Um, I'll give you an example. I had to get some official document notarized. I went to the uh, secretary in our surgery department. Her name is uh, Cindy. I won't use her last name for sake of the video, but anyway, Cindy said, Cindy, so-and-so, notary public, state of Tennessee. Those are the three things on her seal, and she stamped it, which made my document official. You might remember in the Bible, there's a story about King Artaxerxes. He made a law. What needed to be done to that law to make it official? He had to put his seal on it, which had those three things as well. That's what a seal is. Now, if God has a seal, and the seal has something to do with his law, which we'll see, you would expect God's seal to show the authority of his law. Connect that thought with Hebrews 8, verse 10. Why don't you read this with me? For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Stop for a moment. Who's the house of Israel? All of us, right? We're we're the house. We studied that before, right? after Israel, after those days, says the Lord reading, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. God's seals to be put in your mind. God's law likewise should be put in your mind as we saw in Deuteronomy chapter six. So the question I want to consider is this, what is it that gives God's law authority over you? What is it that gets God's law authority? Why do you worship God? Is it because he loves you? Well, your mom loves you. Is it because Jesus died for you? Well, American soldiers died for you too. Why is it that you worship God? Look at Revelation 4 verse 11. And I've got a lot of other passages here. Those of you who are taking notes, get ready to write because I've got a bunch for you. Revelation 4.11, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. We worship God as opposed to anything or anybody else because God is the creator. The fact that God is the creator God distinguishes him from every false god in existence. You probably remember we've quoted Revelation 14, verse 7 several times we worship God because he's the one who made heaven, earth, the seas, and the fountains of water. Those of you who are writing, get ready to write. Here we go. Isaiah 40, verse 26 through 28. Jeremiah 10, verse 11. Acts 17, verse 24. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. Pretty much all of Hebrews chapter 1. Romans 11:36, And there's lots of other texts. All these texts say the same thing. The reason to worship God, God's claim to authority over you is that he is the creator. So we already said this, every seal has three components. The name of the person, what their title is, excuse me, and what their domain is. So where in God's law do we find that claim to authority and those three things? If you want to turn in your Bibles there, I will have some of the text on the screen. This is Exodus chapter 20, where we find the 10 commandments, excuse me. And this, we already studied. This is the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. Now jump down in your Bible to look at verse 11. The Bible says, In six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and therefore God blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So if you look, you find all the components of the seal of God there in God's law in the fourth commandment. What's his name? The Lord. What did he do? He's the creator. That's his title. And what did he make? What's his dominion? Heaven, earth, sea, and all that in them is. Everything that in them is. That's pretty much the whole universe. That's God's dominion. The components that comprise God's seal, that give his law authority, if you will, are found in the Sabbath commandment. God's Sabbath is the seal of his law. It demonstrates that he's the creator. That's why we worship him. And by the way, The gospel message at the end of time. This is another side note. Remember that angel that flew in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth? Revelation 14, verse six. Revelation 14, verse seven, quotes from the Sabbath commandment. That's part of the gospel at the end of time. It demonstrates that God's the creator, and which is why we worship the true creator God. He made all things. But the Sabbath day is also a sign of sanctification. That's what Ezekiel 20 verse 12 says. Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbath to be a sign between them and me that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. God not only created you, he wants to recreate you. It's a sign of that creative power of God. It's an opportunity for communion with God. The Sabbath is a sign of... Verse 20 of the same chapter says the same thing. Hallow my Sabbaths. They will be a sign between me and you that I am the Lord your God. Now in the New Testament, Romans 4 verse 11, Paul says that a sign and a seal are exactly the same thing. God's holy Sabbath day is a seal of his law, and it's also a sign between us and God that he alone has authority in our lives. Now before you say something along the lines of, oh, this sounds like you're putting us under the law, You know, this is salvation by works or something along those lines. Let me explain to you why the Sabbath is the ultimate expression of righteousness by faith. This is a Bible example that Paul used in the book of Galatians. You remember the story from the Old Testament about Abraham and Sarah? God came to them and said, you're going to have a baby. And they were both fairly old at the time, probably older than anybody in this room. And Sarah even laughed about it. But they wanted God's will to be done. And so Sarah said, here's my maid Hagar. She's a lot younger than I am. Take her and that's how God's will will be done. You remember the story, right? Well, eventually a baby was born. Who was that? Ishmael. Ishmael. Was Ishmael the child of promise? No. No. And Paul makes that point in Galatians chapter four. He says, Ishmael is not the child of promise. That child represented works, not righteousness by faith. Eventually, Abraham and Sarah took God at his word and believed him, and another child was born. And who was that? Isaac. Isaac. Was Isaac the child of promise? He was. He represented righteousness by faith because Abraham and Sarah decided they would simply obey God and trust that his word would accomplish what he said it would, even though it seemed to them impossible. Not possible. That child represented faith because they believed God and trusted in his word, and God's will was done. And in that way, remembering God's seventh-day Sabbath represents righteousness by faith, taking him at his word. When God says, remember the seventh-day Sabbath, it'd be almost like Abraham and Hagar to say, well, you know, I've got perfectly good Wednesday for you, or a Sunday, or if you're Muslim, Friday, I suppose. You know? God says, remember the seventh-day to keep it holy. And that's a sign of righteousness by faith in the God who created and wants to recreate. The Sabbath is God's gift of love. Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man. After six days of creation, God said, I'm going to give you something you're going to love, a time to recharge, a time to reconnect with others. It's time especially to reconnect with me. And as I think we just heard in a prior presentation, he who has begun a good work in you will complete it. As we continue to walk with God? Or no, that was, uh, that was answering the question. That's exactly right. So, now we understand what the seal of God is. We're a lot better placed to understand the mark of the beast. Revelation 14, verse 9, we already saw this. This is that terrible warning. Don't receive the mark of the beast. You don't want to do that. Look at verse 12. Revelation 14, verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. At the end of time, there are two groups of people, and those who keep the commandments of God are those who receive the seal of God. Those who don't keep the commandments of God are those who receive the mark of the beast. So now with the mark of the beast having something to do with worship, we saw that in Revelation 13. The beast desires worship. God desires worship. There are two competing authorities at the end of time, both asking for your worship. What has the nation in Revelation 13 done to affect the law of God? Now we mentioned this. I didn't show you the text, but here it is: Daniel 7:25. He'll speak pompous words against the Most High, persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and laws. What is the distinguishing mark or characteristic which shows the authority of this power in Daniel chapter 7? Or taking a shortcut we could just as easily ask the question, which part of the law of God has something to do with times and worship? Which part of the law of God has something to do with time for worship? Because that's what the beast power intends to change. Well, I'm really taking a shortcut here. Um, This is not something that is secret. This is not something that's hidden. I've already shared these at a prior uh, presentation this is what the Vatican says about its own distinguishing mark. We've studied who the beast is, who the, the little horn power is, and this is what the Vatican says. We showed this um, Tuesday night. This is from a Catholic catechism. Which day is a Sabbath day? Answer, Saturday is a Sabbath day. Well, why do we observe Sunday instead of Saturday? Answer, because the Catholic Church transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. It's from the Converts Catechism, page 50. This is what Carl Keating wrote in his book, Catholicism and Fundamentalism. This is page 38. Fundamentalists meet for worship on Sunday, yet there's no evidence in the Bible that corporate worship was to be made on Sunday. The Jewish Sabbath, or day of rest, was, of course, Saturday. It was the Catholic Church that decided Sunday should be the day of worship for Christians in honor of the resurrection. It wasn't God. This is public knowledge. This is what the Church of Rome claims their mark of authority is. We did this. We changed the worship day from God's Sabbath to Sunday. This is a church bulletin from uh, Michigan about 20 years ago. It's not an official church decree, but it's interesting nonetheless. Perhaps the boldest thing, the most revolutionary change the church ever did, happened in the first century. The holy day, the Sabbath, was changed from Saturday to Sunday, not from any directions noted in the scripture, but from the church's sense of its own power. Reason, and this is from a Cardinal Gibbons now, this is a different source. Reason and sense demand the acceptance of one or the other of these two alternatives either Protestantism and the keeping holy of Saturday, or Catholicity and the keeping holy of Sunday. Compromise is impossible. Certainly a very famous Catholic writer. This is why we can understand now Revelation 13, verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. Well, how does God see this question? Jesus said, Matthew 15, verse 9, in vain they worship me. Again, the issue is worship. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now, you might say, why can this be so wrong when everyone is doing it? Well, wait, the truth is not subject to popular vote, is it? Certainly it uh, should not be. It's not a matter of popular opinion. You don't always want to go with the crowd. After all, the crowd was shouting, crucify him, crucify him, when Jesus was here. And a good counterfeit will look an awful lot like the real thing. The mark of the beast is really very simple. When you accept a change in God's holy moral law, you come to the place where you've rejected the sovereignty of God. God claims to be the creator. You've accepted in your life the authority not of God, but of the beast himself the true sabbath is god's people coming into communion with god the mark of the beast is a counterfeit human beings choosing their own way above god now i understand this probably comes as a surprise to some people the you know group 2 remember different groups of people here tonight maybe you have decades invested in something that you now find is a counterfeit well better to find the truth now better to find it late than never we all want to grow in the grace of god And we believe largely what we're taught. When we find out there's some things we were taught incorrectly, that's just an opportunity to say thanks to God. Let me paint a picture for you that I think will make this a little bit clearer. Let's say you're on the corner of, um, I don't know, Shaliford and Lee Highway. And you get out there and you are acting a little bit crazy and everyone who's passing by thinks this. You stand out there and you have a big piece of, I don't know, white cloth. You wave it around and then step on it and everyone's kind of looking at you, and they just go about their business. Or maybe you do the same thing with a blue cloth or a red cloth, and you're just like out there waving these things around at the passersby, and then you're stepping on them. Nobody pays you any attention. They think you're a little crazy. I mean, what is this person doing spending time out there? But what if you take those claws and wash them up, and then you create something else out of it, You have 13 horizontal red and white stripes, a blue patch in one corner, and 50 stars in lines of, you know, six and five. And then you take that cloth, same cloth, back to the busy street, and you wave it around. Everybody sees it. And then you put it on the ground and start stepping on it. Are people upset now? A lot of people are upset now. Perhaps not everybody, but certainly veterans are upset now because that cloth represents something, right? It represents our nation. People have died for that cloth. And that makes a lot of people upset, not because it's red or white or blue cloth, but because that cloth represents something. In a similar way, the Sabbath isn't just a day. It stands for something. Using the same example, write this text down, Isaiah 58 verse 13. God says, please do not trample on my holy day. That's what it says in a literal translation. And it's important we see this because sometimes things that seem small to us are actually big to God. After all, in the Garden of Eden, what did Eve do? She ate a little piece of fruit. Didn't seem like a big deal. Maybe some of you might say to me, Eric, all that's important is that I love God. And to that I would say, amen. Jesus said, if you love me, you can't help but keep my commandments, right? When Jesus enters your life, you're going to grow into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, and he will guide you in his steps. Well, we're coming down to the end. Listen very carefully to what I'm about to say next, because if you miss it, you've missed the point. Nobody has the mark of the beast right now. How many people have the mark of the beast right now? Nobody. Because when we know that, because it won't happen until it's enforced by law. Do you remember what Revelation 13 says? He causes them to receive the mark of the beast. Well, how could that happen? Do you really believe that religious laws could be passed in our nation of freedom with separation of church and state? It could be far more contemporary than we imagine. This is what John Paul II said. Christians will naturally strive to ensure civil legislation respects their duty to keep Sunday holy. Romans determined that civil laws will be passed on this particular religious topic. If you're interested in the history about this, um, this has been going on in our country for over 150 years. There have been attempts to create laws just like this. Now, the Bible says in Revelation 13, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond or slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. And that no one might buy or sell except the one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now we can see the way this world is going. This time may not be far off. What does the Bible mean when it says receive the mark in the forehead or in the hand? I shared with you previously the way to prevent yourself from getting the mark of the beast is to put God's law in his word in your forehead or in your hand. We saw it all the way back in Deuteronomy. I believe that putting God's law in your forehead means putting it in your mind, starting to understand these things, internalizing them. But there's some people that will not receive the mark of the beast in their forehead. They'll receive it in their hand. They may say, yeah, I don't agree with this. Yeah, I really don't want, I, I, I just disagree with it. I think that's wrong, but I can't buy or sell. I'm going to go along anyway. Those people receive it in their hands. They don't believe it, but they go along to get along. I don't agree it's right, but if I don't do it, I won't be able to feed my kids or raise my kids or buy or sell anything, so I'll go along. Certainly, at this time in earth's history, standing for Jesus will require the same kind of faith that the martyrs had. It's happened before, and it will, according to Bible prophecy, happen again. John 4.24 says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Spirit and in truth. We go back to the time of Cain and Abel. The issue was worship. All the way back at the beginning, the issue was worship. They both decided to worship God, right? Both built an altar. Both brought an offering. But Abel obeyed God's precise instructions about worship. God accepted Abel's offer. Cain did not. Cain's worship, however, was more attractive, more contemporary, probably more sanitary when I think about it, definitely had more to appeal to the senses, tasted better. I mean, Abel's, um, Cain's worship was in every way more attractive, but it wasn't what God required. And God did not have respect to Cain's offering. Cain was furious, and by the time he came to his senses, his brother's dead body lay at his feet. And God came down and questioned him, as we saw. And the Bible says God placed a mark on Cain. He didn't worship according to God's will and received a mark as a result of that. Now, down at the end of time, the question is, again, about worship. Those who do not worship God in spirit and truth will be marked, this time with the mark of the beast. It has nothing to do with a laser beam or a chip under your skin or a barcode or none of those crazy ideas. God's issues are more than skin deep. God's issues have to do with the heart. Does God have your heart? If he has your heart, he will have your will. He will have your worship. He will have your obedience. The question is, who do you love? Which means more to you, earth or heaven? God's ways or earth's ways? God's calling you to yield to him and his word. I had some other... Again, I'm going to... uh kind of make a different conclusion here, perhaps than I had here. We started this whole series of lectures. My wife gave a lecture. I'm sorry to all of those of you who missed it, but um, she gave a lecture about finding something that she would be willing to die for so that she would have something that she knew she was willing to live for. And that was Bible truth. We started this lecture with 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 10, which describes two groups of people in relation to the Antichrist power and deceptions at the end of time. One group may know the truth, but they don't love the truth. The other group loves the truth with everything that they have. So whether you're in the group that you've heard all this before, or whether you're in a group that this is completely new information to you, it doesn't matter God may be testing you on different points, but what matters? Do you love the truth? I don't think there's anyone left in group three. I think all of you probably see by this point how important this topic is. I've spoken tonight about only one specific truth about the end times. Are you willing to follow the truth? To those of you in group one who've heard it before, do you also love the truth? Those in group three, they don't care. Those in group two, those of you who are shocked, you've never heard this before, are you willing to follow the truth? Are you? I guess to those in group one who've heard it before, I want to ask you as well, is there any truth in the commandments of God or the testimony of Jesus that you're battling against? Do you truly love the truth? Have you received the love of the truth from Jesus that you might be saved? because this issue is for everyone in this room, 100% of us. Well, I'm going to kneel and pray for myself and pray for each one of you. I'd invite those of you who are able to kneel as well. And I want to ask that each one of us would, with whatever decision God is asking us to make, receive the love of the truth that we might be saved. Will you kneel with me? Dear God, there are so many truths in Scripture, but there are some truths that are present truth. They are truths that affect us right now. They are those truths that, with prophet's pen, you have warned us about. You have sent us encouragement and warning and instruction on your will and your ways and your desire for us. We know that there are two powers contending for our loyalty, two powers contending for our worship. Christ is working with his holy angels through the Holy Spirit to impress each one of us here tonight about areas of truth that perhaps we either have not seen before or perhaps we've turned away from in the past. And Satan is working with his evil angels and all the powers of governments of this world that he can get onto his side to enforce worship. He wants to force people to whether they agree with it or not, to give him either first-hand or even secondhand worship. He doesn't care. All he cares about is that our first and only loyalty is not to you. Oh, my Father, I ask for the sake of Jesus that you will give me the love of the truth. Help me to understand your word and your will for my life. And I pray for each person here that we will each study the Bible more and more each day and discover more and more about what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do in our lives and his desire. For us in the future. May the Holy Spirit speak to each person here tonight individually, and may each one of us learn how Jesus would lead us every step of the way. In Jesus' name, amen.